Uploading Ideas to Change the World, the podcast of the Socialist Workers' Party. Each week we'll be bringing you original content and analysis of the social, economic and cultural questions facing the world today. What we're going to do today is uh, we're here to launch the new book, System Change, Not Climate Change, a revolutionary response to environmental crisis. And as well as myself speaking, I, I edited the book and I've got a couple of chapters in that. I'm very pleased that we have two other speakers. Um, we're all going to speak for about 10 minutes and there'll be plenty of time for discussion from the, the floor. Um, I've got Ian Angus on my left. Ian is the editor of the online eco-socialist journal Climate and Capitalism. Uh, he will be familiar to and many of you for his, uh, his, his excellent books, Facing the Anthropocene and A Redder Shade of Green, um, are both, I would say, extremely important uh, 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 contributions to the socialist and Marxist tradition around the environmental movement, environmental activism, and an understanding of, of ecology. And on my right, I have Sarah Ensor. Sarah's a, a long-standing SWP member based in Manchester. She's uh, a member of the PCS, and she's written a chapter in the book on, uh, on the biodiversity crisis and on extinction. Um, so... Before I come to that, I should also say that the book is a collection of essays. It's got contributions from a whole number of people, some of whom are in this room, and as part of the contribution, I'll be inviting those speakers to say a few words about their chapter and, uh, and, uh, and so on. Um, but there will be other chance for other people to contribute as well. But by way of my own introduction, can you just time me for um, As I said, we're here to launch this book. The book very much has its origins in the movement itself. Uh, comrades will remember, I'm sure, the end of last year when the climate strikes, both internationally and here in Britain, hit the, hit the streets with school students in their tens and then their hundreds of thousands walking out on strike uh, following the call from Greta Thunberg. Um, later on, uh, uh, in, in, in 1st January and then April of this year, we saw in Britain the Extinction Rebellion uh, strikes, which put uh, tens of thousands of people on the streets, many of whom were, went, uh, were prepared to be arrested, to engage in civil disobedience and to protest and demand radical action on climate change. And there's an Extinction Rebellion flag there, and well done for the comrades for bringing that. Um, and the origins of this book, the title of this book, lie in those, in those movements. Many years ago, I was uh, part of organising around a climate summit that took place in Copenhagen in Denmark. And at the time, there was a system change, not climate change march that took place. And actually, it was a march of the left. It wasn't the whole movement. It felt very much like a slogan that came from the left, from the far left, from the socialists and the anarchists and so on. But actually now, if you go on any of those demonstrations, you see placards. I, I don't think I've seen a demonstration by school students that hasn't got a homemade cardboard placard somewhere that says system change, not climate change. And of course, there are other slogans and other demands and other things that people are concerned about. But actually, that slogan has, has touched, a, touched a mood. Um, and um, it's one, I think, that socialists should be privileged and, and, and proud to engage with. It raises all sorts of questions, of course. What do you mean by system change? What, what is your different alternative, your different vision? And, uh, and so on. Nonetheless, it's a, it's a good, uh, good starting point for us. And I'm not surprised that people have started to protest in their tens, their hundreds of thousands, and I'm not surprised that people are engaging in even more radical um, demands um, themselves. You only have to look at what's happening in the world around us to realise that there's a lot to protest about, and there's a real urgency about protesting. Um, the biodiversity crisis that 
uh, that Sarah will talk about is something that is terrifying all of us and actually motivating people. This is no longer a question for scientists writing in obscure scientific journals. This is an issue that scares tens of millions of people. It's an interesting fact, for instance, the Blue Planet 2 programme the BBC produced about life in water, which had a, a very famous episode at the end about the plastic crisis, was watched, the first episode was watched in Britain by 14 million people. Uh, the episodes when they were broadcast and live-streamed in China were watched by up to 80 million people. So many people watched those programs that the Chinese internet speed slowed down as a result of that. That is the engagement by ordinary people in, mil in their millions with a concern about the environment and the planet. Um, and there are other environmental issues that are coming up that are linked. Air pollution, for instance. There's a report, I come from Manchester, there's a report that says 152 roads in Manchester, none of which I should say are motorways, 152 roads have illegal levels of air pollution at the moment. Killer levels is how they describe them. On every one of those roads there are communities, there are schools, there are workplaces, there are hospitals and, uh, and, uh, and so on. This is the state level of the, of the, of the crisis. And, and many people, I think, are saying, actually, we've known some of this stuff for, for, for quite a long time. Why has nothing been done about it? I'll, I'll let you into a secret. I actually own a piece of the Amazon rainforest. Um, when I was about seven, my aunt bought me and my, my siblings a, a, a thing, a, a, an acre of rainforest. It was part of a, a, a campaign by various environmental NGOs to save the rainforest, and we all had to buy each other pieces. I was really pissed off because I wanted a book. Um, but she, she, we got these. Uh, we, we have certificates that say you own an acre of the rainforest. God, God alone knows what's happened to it, to it now. But actually, that sense of you could save the world then by buying an acre of rainforest for your for your nieces and your nephews. Actually, today that sounds farcical, doesn't it? The scale of the, onsla the onslaught of environmental destruction, and uh, and so on, is so is so great at all. Since Bolsonaro was elected as, uh, as, uh, as president of Brazil at the end of, uh, of the summer last year, the, the, the stripping and back of the rainforest has now uh, reached, uh, uh, accelerated by 88%. And the companies that are driving that, the logging companies, the agricultural corporations, were the biggest contributor to Bolsonaro's election funding and, uh, and cam cam campaigning. And, you know, my little acre of rainforest, if it's still there, faces a real threat, actually, if not from... Uh, from ordinary people in Brazil, not even the indigenous people or so on, but it expresses a threat from big multinationals that really want to do it. And then, of course, there's, there's climate change. Um, 12 years we have, 11 and a bit years now, actually, they say, before uh, we can no longer keep it to less than uh, 2 degrees two degrees Celsius. That's a frightening statistic, and I think it's the one that's really dynamited the movement and driven people out onto the streets, demanding real action. Um, and, and part of the reason, I think, is because people say, look, you've, uh, you've known about this quite a long time. Um, I, I, one of my favourite pla placards from the school student strikes, which I apologise in advance for the, for the language, but it was written by a, a school student, not by, not by me. Two years you've been bitching about Brexit, they said, while well, our planet is dying. It's a sense of, actually, why has nothing happened? But actually, I think we can go a little bit further than that. One of the quotes that I've written in the, in the book here is a scientist writing about uh, 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 the threat from global warming. Uh, the change global warming sorts of come about mainly as a result of burning fossil fuels, he writes. The output of these and other carbon dioxide sources is outstripping the absorbing capacity of carbon dioxide sinks. If the surplus continues to increase at its present rate, CO2 in the atmosphere will reach levels of over 650 parts per million in the next 50 years. Scientists are now generally agree that the present buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere could, if it were to continue without restrictions, spell catastrophe for our planet within less than a century. Exactly what we must do about it remains in question until we have more exact knowledge, but time's not on our side. 
How can we avoid a dangerous bottleneck of atmospheric carbon dioxide? The obvious answer is by curbing the use of fossil fuels, but it's plainly an answer that today runs straight against the grain of real politics and economic habit. Um, that was written by um, Robert Lamb, who was a conservation economist, wrote a very good book called The World Without Trees in 1979. So any of those politicians who say, we didn't know, we weren't sure of the science, Robert Lamb was right not to be entirely sure, because the, the science wasn't quite there yet. But actually from 1979, people have been saying we need to curb our use of fossil fuels. And Robert Lamb's book wasn't obscure. It sold tens of millions of copies, tens of thousands of copies in Britain alone. It was a, a real blockbuster of an environmental book at a time when, uh, when, when, when these things were not common. So I think one of the explanations, uh, one of the questions the school students and the uh, other activists are asking is why has it taken so long? And here I think we can get one explanation of why it's taking so long from a quote uh, from uh, Mohamed Bakindo. Anyone know who Mohamed Bakindo is? He's the, general sec the Secretary General of OPEC and he uh, did an interesting speech yesterday, rather conveniently for this meeting, where he said that Greta Thunberg and the school student movement that, he's, that she's uh, unleashed is the greatest single threat to the existence of fossil fuels. Well, um, I... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank, uh, thank Greta Thunberg and, uh, and the school students, not, not me, for that one, because I think he's right. And that gives us an indication of why no action has happened. Because what has happened with the school student strikes, the Extinction Rebellion, all the other social movements, is it's actually put those fossil fuel corporations under the spotlight and has become quite a threat to the viability of, 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 of them. So system change, not climate change, as I said, is a slogan that can mean many things to many people. And, um, and uh, this book, an engagement with those debates, it's not one of those books where we want it to be saying this is the authoritative answer to all the questions. It's part of a debate and discussion inside and outside the movement about how we can, uh, uh, we can, uh, we can fundamentally change the world and what that change will look like. It's also more than that, though. I think it's a book that argues that Marxism as an ideology has so much to offer these movements and people wanting to change the world and understanding our environmental crisis. I'm very pleased, for instance, that there are two chapters in it, one by uh, the Japanese Marxist Kohai Sato, uh, who uh, uh, has recently won the Isaac Deutscher Prize for his book, uh, Karl Marx's Eco-Socialism, in, in a very important uh, uh, read. And he looks at the classical tradition of Marx and Engels and, uh, and ecology, and, and also Ian Angus's chapter uh, on the metabolic rift, which he will be speaking about later today, and I hope uh, people will listen to that, uh, is, is also a similar, similar contribution. There are other chapters as well that are important. There's a, a great chapter from two of our Canadian comrades, Michelle Robidoux and Caroline Egan, who, who hopefully will say a few words today about the movements that have brought together indigenous people, trade unionists, socialists and environmentalists in, uh, in North America to challenge tar sands and uh, so on. Camilla Royale's written on the Anthropocene, a, a new scientific concept that I think comrades have to learn and understand. Ian, Ian Rappel has written about how they tried to solve it, how the capitalists tried to deal with climate change, biodiversity and so on, and how they come up with these bizarre schemes that, uh, uh, that make money while, uh, while watching the world burn. And, and Amy Leather has written two good... Uh, important chapters, one on plastic and plastic pollution, but I think also the development of fossil fuel capitalism uh, uh, and, and that. And finally, Suzanne Jeffrey has made a, a really important article in there that looks at the role of social movements in changing society and puts the emphasis on the working class and talks about how the environmental movement can link closely back to the, environment, uh, to, 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 the, uh, to the workers and to the trade unions to change things. So that's, that's really enough from me. One thing I do want to finish on, though, is that I, I think this is a book that I hope comrades will buy. When I first joined Socialist Worker many, many years ago, we had a slogan, buy it, read it, sell it. 
And I really think that this is one of those books that you should buy yourself, you should read it, but you should sell it too. You should sell it in your local Extinction Rebellion groups to climate strikers. You should sell it to your workmates because actually this is about generating a, uh, a, a, an ideology, a radical revolutionary movement that can fight the system and bring about fundamental change. So thank you very much. I'm going to now hand over to, um, to Ian. Uh, as I said, Ian's come from Canada. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I always love speaking at Marxism. I've had great times here in the past, and this is another wonderful one. <coughs> you know, I actually have two reasons for being um, very pleased to be part of this book launch. I mean, the first and rather obvious one um, is that on a personal level, I'm honored that Martin chose to include my essay, The uh, Discovery and Rediscovery of Metabolic Rift, in the book. Uh, if any of you read uh, Climate and Capitalism, the website I edit, you'll know that I'm rather obsessed with that topic. And I've been writing a lot of essays on aspects of metabolic rift over the past couple of years. And uh, this essay sums up some of the thoughts I've got on it since that time. And I, think you'll, I hope you'll find it of interest. It's very clear to me that the theory of metabolic rift, which was first expressed by Marx, and then subsequently developed and expanded by socialists in the 21st century, offers the best explanation and the best basis for action um, in the current crisis. Um, but second, and much more important than my personal pleasure at getting my name in print, um, this book is a really important contribution to the most important struggle of our time, the fight to stop capitalism from destroying the planet our lives depend upon. You know, it's 170 years ago that Marx and Engels wrote um, that, that unless capitalism was uh, eliminated, Eventually, the great productive forces that capitalism produced would turn into great destructive forces. And that's exactly what has happened. In, in, uh, in my article in the book, I tried to summarize just some of the things that it, we now face. Global warming, superstorms, rising sea levels, toxic air and smog, ocean acidification and dead zones, species extinction, soil erosion, freshwater depletion, ozone destruction, indestructible plastics and chemical pollution, deforestation, expanding deserts, antibiotic resistant bacteria, new diseases and plagues, and I gave up at that point. <laughs> because I really couldn't fill the whole essay with it. But every day, we see more evidence that capitalism, which was once, you know, a system that generated an unprecedented wave of, of, of creativity and a sense of liberation for people, uh, has transformed itself into a force for destruction, decay, and death. There was a time, even at the time when I first got in the socialist movement, uh, you could make a case that environmental destruction was serious, but no worse than any of capitalism's other crimes. That time is gone. Capitalism has driven us to a crisis point in the relationship between humanity and nature. If business continues as usual, business as usual is actually a BAU abbreviation, shows up in all kinds of scientific documents. If business continues as usual, major ecological collapse isn't just possible, but probable. And that will put civilization at risk. There's a fine article in the current International Socialist Journal by, by Alice Kalinikos in which he quotes Jonathan Neal about talking about what collapse of civilization will be. And it isn't going to be retreating towards all of us living in a nice little, you know, hut somewhere. What we see in terms of uh, 
what, what uh, collapse of civilization is, is rounding up children and putting them into concentration camps. That's the collapse of civilization. The collapse of civilization, we saw it several times in individual countries in the, in the 20th century. The black boots walking down the street and millions of people getting executed as the ruling class attempts to establish firm control over a system that simply can't control itself. John Bellamy Foster made the point very clearly a few years ago. He wrote, we have reached a turning point in the human relationship to the earth. All hope for the future of this relationship is now either revolutionary or false. All hope is revolutionary or false. In the second half of the 20th century, environmental destruction went from gradual to very fast, from short-term to long-term or even permanent, and from local to global. We now face a planetary emergency, an interlocked set of crises in the fundamental natural processes that have made Earth habitable for millions of years. What humanity faces in this century is not just deterioration in the conditions of life in one area or even one country. The metabolic rift, the split between humanity and the natural conditions of life is now global. And there's now a very real possibility that it will throw all of humanity into a new dark age and that our dreams of a better world will be replaced by unending nightmares. We have to adjust our thinking. We as socialists, we as revolutionaries, have to adjust our thinking and our actions to respond to that reality. In the past, and even today in many cases, unfortunately, socialists have tended to treat environmental problems as just another stick to beat capitalism with, as another proof that capitalism must go, but not as an arena of class struggle to which we must be fully committed. In the 21st century, that approach is not just mistaken, it's suicidal. Today, fighting capitalist ecocide must be at the heart of our vision, our program, and our activity. Increasingly, the planetary emergency is directly affecting the lives of working people, farmers, indigenous communities, and all of the oppressed worldwide. As capitalism continues its relentless drive to expand no matter what, the, what damage it causes, we will see, and in fact, we are already seeing widespread resistance to those attacks. Many of these struggles that we will see will focus on narrow issues, and many of the participants will have illusions about what can be done within the system. That's inevitable. The worst mistake socialists could make in that such circumstances, and unfortunately it's a mistake that some socialists do make, is to stand on the sidelines because a given campaign isn't radical enough or because it doesn't fit somebody's preconceptions of what a movement ought to look like. Because the creativity of working people is enormous and they will invent movements that we can't imagine. And XR is an example, I think. We need to remember Marx's great insight that people in large numbers don't change themselves and then change the world. They change themselves by changing the world. Rosa Luxemburg said, class consciousness and, and organization aren't created simply by pamphlets and leaflets, but, quote, by the living political school, by the fight and in the fight. Lenin famously wrote, that revolutionaries must not restrict themselves to a narrow, 
economic understanding of class struggle. He called on socialists to be tribunes of the people, responding to every, quote, every manifestation of tyranny and oppression, no matter where it appears, no matter what stratum or class of the people. In our time, revolutionaries cannot be tribunes of the people unless we are tribunes of the environment. We must respond to the best of our ability to every manifestation of capitalist environmental destruction. This excellent collection of Marxist essays on the global environment crisis is, as I've said before, an important contribution to the process of building that movement that we need. It's an important and powerful contribution to the education of greens and reds everywhere, to building struggles against ecocide, and to educating the participants in those struggles. The online journal that I edit, Climate and Capitalism, has for some time featured a page called Essential Books on Marxism and Ecology. When I get back to Canada, system change, not climate change, will be added to that list. Eco-socialists everywhere owe a debt of gratitude to Martin for editing it and to Bookmarks for publishing it. I encourage everyone here to buy it and read it. In fact, really you should buy two. <laughs> buy one and give one to a friend. It really is that good. Thank you. If we carry on as we are, business as usual, as Ian says, we are set to lose one million of the estimated 8.2 million species on Earth. And it's estimated because we have only identified about 1.8 million of those. Um, and I'm going to use the example of, of insects because, of course, Insects with worms, microorganisms, and plant matter make up fertile soil. So if we destroy the insects, we are destroying the very basis of our food chain. And Puerto Rican rainforests have lost up to 98% of their insects in the last 40 years. And this is an area, I mean, the rainforests in Puerto Rico are an area that you would expect to have some of the highest densities of species on Earth. Mexican forests have lost up to 80% of their insects over the same period. And Germany's nature reserves have lost up to 75%. And of course, this means that thousands of species of birds, lizards and mammals who either directly eat the insects or their food relies on the insects cannot breed successfully, so they disappear. Um, and that is a direct relationship. So Britain has lost 56% of its farmland birds. These are species like skylarks and partridges. And France has lost around 30% of their farmland birds since the 1980s. And of course, famously, we know all the problems coral reefs have had Coral reefs uh, form nurseries for 25% of the Earth's marine um, fish. And they are now threatened by acidification, warming water linked to climate change, and are we are creating... Warming water and acidification is creating ideal circumstances for diseases to um, grow. And as Martin said, thanks to the Blue Planet program, most of us have seen the footage of whales, turtles and seabirds dying because they have 
eaten plastic and they are feeding their young plastic mistaken for food. Now, yes, these catastrophic levels of insect loss are linked to raising, rising temperatures and pollution, but the biggest problem for them is the destruction of their habitats. And this has really been exacerbated by the global use now of glyphosate weed killers and neonicotinoid insecticides. Now, glyphosate and neonicotinoids were both developed in the 1980s as a response um, and to replace the previous generation of um, pesticides, including DTT, that are, were, turned out to be incredibly carcinogenic, as uh, Rachel Carson wrote in her book, Silent Spring. And so glyphosate and neonicotinoids um, have really been championed by... Well, they were developed by Monsanto, that's recently been bought by Bayer, you know, these giant agrochemical um, industries. And um, the result of this, well, actually, I mean, originally, environmental organisations felt that these were a solution to the problem as well. But they have, in some places, wiped out pollinators. They have wrecked ecosystems. They destroy bees' ability to find their way home which obviously is a honeybee, if you can't find your way home, that's a death sentence. Um, and this system, this is also what lies behind the fact that hundreds of thousands of farmers have been driven into debt and into suicide on every continent. And to understand why this is happening, we really need to understand that industrial farming and fishing is partly about producing food, but it's mainly about producing profit. And it's not, I really think we need to understand, this is not because farmers don't care about their animals and their land. And we know this um, from the, I mean, even such a sort of mainstream example as farming today, there are constantly farmers being interviewed, complaining about the, um, the way they cannot make a living out of um, what they want to do on farming, but there are also brilliant examples of farmers sinking their own money into innovative solutions to um, their pigs not getting enough clean water or their, um, there aren't enough bumblebees. And they these are the people who understand that their soil is losing its fertility. But under capitalism, each farm is a business that has to maximise its own profit against its competitors who are, of course, other farmers. And this means that they have to maximise machinery size and they have to break up their ecosystems. So grasslands are turned into great swathes of single crops um, and rainforests are chopped down for soybeans <coughs> and avocados. And this drive for profit in the industrial meat production is where we have got to the state of the feedlot system, where animals are penned inside or in a small space outside for the whole of their lives. So you take a cow, for instance. A cow is a herd animal, uh, so it is a social animal that needs um, sunshine, um, lots of space outdoors to roam around. It needs fresh air. It needs lots of different plants to eat. Um, that it, it's very complex biology, turns into milk. And 
our feedlot systems are reducing these animals to um, milk and calf machines that are worth so much profit per square meter they take up. And of course, the result of this is that although the feedlot system is highly profitable, they also become centers of pollution, disease, antibiotic resistance, and animal misery. And of course, industrial fishing treats the oceans in the same ways. So why don't we just stop? Why can't we just stop cutting down the rainforests, stop overfishing, um, and stop climate change? And of course, we've all heard the mainstream answers, selfish human nature, irresponsible corporations, meat eaters, and too many people. My particular favorite. Uh, and this, I mean, this, this situation makes no sense unless we understand that what links biodiversity crisis to industrial meat production, deforestation, overfishing, rising temperatures, and extreme weather <coughs> events is capitalism's drive for profit. Um, so, in effect, the destruction of biodiversity is an inevitable byproduct of processes that exalt the accumulation of profit above all other considerations. Um, and this is why we are heading towards uh, a world where large bits of it will not be habitable. And we are going to have to get rid of capitalism because the capitalist solutions to problems created by capitalism are completely inadequate, as we saw with glyphosate and, and neonicotinoids. Um, and I just wanted to mention Ian Rappel's article in the book where he demonstrates very well that you can't solve the crises created by capitalism by applying the theory and practice of capitalism. Um, so natural capital and environmental services are doomed to fail. So, to finish, what we need to do is replace capitalism with socialism. It's that easy, comrades. Um, and if, if, when we do this, rewilding and other forms of biodiversity conservation are more likely to succeed because they will be democratic and that we will have a rational approach to our food production, our use of nature and natural resources, and we will not force other life forms to compete with capital and its profit motive. This is how we could repair our relationship with the planet, develop our ecological understanding, and rid ourselves of the muck of ages. And this is how we can shape a convivial, sustainable future. Thanks. Yeah, I um, actually was able to contribute to the book. And my chapter actually looks at how, in order to understand the situation we've ended up today, we really need to look at how capitalism is organised and very specifically how the whole growth and development of capitalism is completely entwined with the growth and development of the fossil fuel industry. And really this is what has led to the situation today where fossil fuels like coal, oil and gas are completely locked into capitalism. Because actually... Capitalism adopted fossil fuels on a massive scale during the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. Let's be clear, if you want to call this a fossil economy, the birthplace was Britain. It was during the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s that uh, an energy transition takes place. Essentially, there's a shift from using water power to using steam power generated from coal to power the early machines of the textile industry. This wasn't inevitable. To be honest, water power had dominated in the early days of industrialisation. It was free. Um, but in the end, steam power won out. And really, this was because actually the use of coal 
enabled capitalists better to able to exploit workers because it was mobile. You could take coal to where workers were in the growing cities rather than having to take workers to where the water was in the rural areas and then capitalists had to buy, uh, pay out for more infrastructure but not enough workers if those ones went on strike to replace them. It made more sense for them, this mobility of coal. And once one capitalist adopted it, all of them did. So by 1830, the majority of textile mills were using steam. So it means that coal became the energy basis of production, driving the industrial revolution forward, not only the machinery, but the transport like steam trains forward. And this whole fossil economy was really projected outwards across the globe through both economic competition, but also through actually colonialisation and imperialism, you know, the steamships that were used to conquer uh, new territories and things that previously had resisted. And this really drives out fossil fuels beyond Britain. And of course, the arrival of oil in the 1850s accelerates this. I also look at really, though, how this process is then accelerated in the post-war period after 1945. And this is something actually Ian has written about in other books quite a lot uh, about this process. And really talks about how you know, there's been a massive increase in emissions. People talk about the great acceleration of emissions after 1945. That this took place really because of what happened during the Second World War. It laid the basis for this to happen. Um, oil was very decisive in the war, but actually governments like the US piled in massive amounts of investment into, if you like, the oil-related industries. They spent billions you know, updating the petrochemical plants to make the things for the war effort. Afterwards, they sell them very cheaply to the companies that became the Monsantos and DuPonts, um, really locking in fossil fuel use and actually the age of plastic laying the basis for it in that post-war period. And the point about this is to say that the world we live in today is actually the whole infrastructure of capitalism has been built on fossil fuel, first coal and then oil, and you'd have to write off these enormous investments, these sunken historic investments, if we were transitioned to renewables. And really, although there is opportunities for capitalism to try and move into new markets of renewables, actually it would be quite illogical for them to write off all these sunken investments. And I suppose the conclusion here really is, is that you know, fossil fuels are not this overlay that you can just peel away from capitalism. They are completely embedded in every as aspect of the system, and that really leads you to the conclusion you have to get rid of the system. What people are talking about, revolutionary change, very importantly, this isn't though an argument we're just going to wait for the revolution. Campaigning matters in all the ways people have talked about. Campaigning over fracking has actually stopped some of the further expansion of the fossil fuel infrastructure at the moment. But actually, it means that what John just talked about in terms of the 20th of September gives us a massive opportunity to take that movement forward, to join with the school students on the streets, walking out on strike, and to be honest, that is just the beginning of it. We want this movement to grow and continue and deepen to make real the title of the book, System Change, Not Climate Change. Michelle, who's contributed to the book as well. Thanks, and uh, uh, Carol and I both uh, contributed to the book, and uh, it, the topic uh, of, of our chapter was on Canada's tar sands, indigenous sovereignty, and a just transition for workers, and a lot has happened since we wrote that article. Uh, it's moving at an incredibly fast pace, and I think uh, uh, that that's the urgency that I sense in this meeting is, is perfectly appropriate. Canada is 200 years behind its uh, targets uh, for 2030. That's, that's the current state uh, of things. And uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, not even two, two weeks ago, uh, the Liberal government did two things back to back. They declared a climate emergency. And they said that a bold action was needed. 
and the next day they approved the Trans Mountain uh, Tar Sands Pipeline, the expansion uh, of the pipeline. And I think, obviously, from the reaction, people know what that is. Um, the response from indigenous people uh, in British Columbia, which is on the route of this pipeline, was immediate. The Grand Chief of uh, the uh, BC Union of Indi Indian Chiefs, uh, Stuart Phillips, said that the, the land is dying, the fish are dying, the people are hurting, and this is not the time for a reckless policy such as this. And, of course, this was on the eve of uh, the uh, National, uh, National Indigenous Day in Canada, uh, at the time when there's just been a, a report released on missing and murdered Indigenous women and all of these, uh, 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 you know, uh, fancy words from the government saying that, yes, we care about Indigenous people, but they don't care about free, prior, and informed consent. When Indigenous people say, we do not want this crossing our land, the government ignores it. Um, so that, that, that is in a snapshot, that is uh, the situation in, in Canada. Canada is heating two times as fast as the rest of the world. And in the north of Canada, it's even worse. And it means that indigenous people are losing completely the basis for their survival, for their existence. The ice flows, all of the stuff that we know is disappearing. It's, it's a massive crisis. At the same time, though, in the snapshot, um, is the, uh, the Green New Deal has taken off in Canada at a pace that is absolutely astounding. Uh, there are 300 town halls that have been planned, 200 of them have, have happened already. It is a bottom-up uh, process of the Pact for a Green New Deal. Um, Naomi Klein and Avi Lewis uh, uh, have been part of a tour across the country where they're saying this is not a climate policy. This is a massive state intervention to tackle multiple crises, to tackle the uh, burning need for social and economic equity in society, to put justice at the heart of a plan to to transform society, to tackle this emergency, uh, climate emergency, and to, to tackle poverty and inequality and racism. And uh, critically, to implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which, which means free, prior, and informed consent by Indigenous people for any of these mega projects. And, um, and, and, and that thing is taking on, and it's pushed the NDP, the New Democratic Party, to take up this issue, but it's a far too timid, far too, uh, far too uh, meek, uh, interpretation of the Green New Deal that we need and it's lowering people's horizons and it's a, it's a federal election year and the right is doubling down on uh, post pitting jobs in the environment. Um, the Liberals answer is a disaster clearly. So the clock is ticking on a movement for an alternative vis vision uh, of, what, of, of what we need. And at the same time, the climate strike is there. 150,000 students took part in, in, uh, in Quebec in the student strike on March 15th at the call of Greta Thunberg. It was a fantastic uh, development. It's called uh, The Planet Invites Itself to the University. And, and massively, people, it's, it's incredible. If you see the footage of that demonstration, they're going to be there on September 27th. They're going to be there. Uh, at, we have September 27th, not the 20th, but we will be there in the global strike. I want to say one, one thing. The boldness of the XR uh, mobilizations, the uh, Fridays for Future, a young woman, maybe 20 years old, contacted our Trades and Labor Council in Toronto and said, will you declare a strike for September 27th? That's the boldness that's there. We have to match that boldness by saying, yes, we will be there in, uh, by, by starting the discussion that the, uh, the brother talked about uh, in unison. That is what we need to do everywhere across, across the world.
I'm a journalist on Socialist Work and my name's Sarah Bates. I'm really glad the book has come out. I think it's going to be a really vital tool to take into our Extinction Rebellion groups, the school strikes, anti-fracking groups, trade union meetings um, and everything else. And I'm actually really glad that it's called System Change, Not Climate Change because I've reported on the climate school strikes and that is kind of the unofficial slogan of a lot of it. It is an amazing feeling to be in central London and there's 15,000 school students uh, kind of spontaneously chanting uh, that. And I think one of the kind of the, sh the tragedies of the school uh, climate strikes actually is the fact that they take place during the week. Most people actually don't go to, don't get the opportunity to experience that. Uh, you know, they don't get to experience the kind of the radical politics and, and just the fury from the school strikers. And actually, I think you underestimate these people at your peril. Because I've been part of the Extinction Rebellion International Rebellion in London in April. And I actually disagree with the comrade who kind of characterised it as middle class. That's actually not my experience. And I think, actually, you can fall into being quite dismissive uh, of these people, actually. Because to be a member of Extinction Rebellion, you need to believe that it's possible to decarbonise Britain by 2025, which, is a, which I think is a radical demand. Um, and on the school students, these are a group of people who think we have 12 years left. And Ian talked very powerfully about how uh, you know, we will lose the ability to dream of a better world. But this is a group of people who think they are going to lose their entire future. And unless workers join them, unless adults join them, it gets pulled as a question of intergenerational politics. I was told on the last school student strike that actually it was adults who had spent their whole lives flying around the world, eating meat and buying plastic, and they had stolen their future from them. Actually, this can pull in quite skewed ways. A colleague of mine, a journalist, was told, you know, it's going to affect people like me. It's not going to affect people like you. It was his 29th birthday. He's definitely going to be affected, you know, by climate change. He was quite upset by that actually. Um, so I think the best way can we can cut through this kind of intergenerational thing is to join them. It's not to support them, it's to join them in their fight because if we leave them to fight alone they will lose. So I'm going to ask our two speakers to come back for two or three minutes each uh, to respond to the stuff. So Sarah. Um, I'm a PCS union rep um, in my workplace I am, and we support the climate strike of the 20th September, and I'm on the Northwest region, and which has declared a climate crisis. And all of this is great, and it means absolutely nothing unless we actually make this concrete in workplaces. So, I mean, the first thing, I've been talking about um, this with uh, my colleagues last week, and we are going to invite a climate striker into our next branch meeting. Um, at the end of this month and we have to make an argument about this now I think personally that I am um, often one of the most conservative people in the room um, in a members meeting because I'm constantly thinking about what manager I mean I tried to invite an XR speaker in and management went crazy at me um, and uh, for various reasons um, and so I absolutely must not judge this by my initial reactions because my initial reaction is we could have a lunchtime thing where we do a photo opportunity and you know blah 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 and we tweet about it and it's you know oh god you know is that really the limit of what's possible here and John's point that to start talking about this wouldn't be legal or this wouldn't be lawful is just so missing the point and it is such an abdication of responsibility 
and um, the average civil servant now is under 30 and you know my members are way ahead of me in this and so you know I will have to be one of the people fighting my own conservatism in this but I think the first thing to do is get a climate striker into your workplace and make sure you of course that you um, go to your XR meetings I'm a um, you know trade union activist with XR as well and the possibilities here are endless Wow um, I do come from Canada where the organized labor movement is far weaker than it is here um, so much of what you're saying is very really inspiring I'm sure to Carmen's in the front who wrote for the book as well but we are seeing activity there and that's one of the things I think is important about this book and about the discussion we've had here is that what we see with Mar when Marxists start to enter, the, think about this kind of movement and deal with it, what we bring to it is a class struggle view of how you change society and how you change the world. And bringing, working people into the struggle uh, is critical to that. There's a tendency, in fact a very strong tendency uh, among Greens to basically write off workers as enemies. To the workers who work on the uh, oil rigs, the workers who work on the uh, tar sands are treated as enemies rather than potentially our most powerful allies, the ones that could actually turn the taps off. And that's a thing that I think that the, the left, the socialists can bring to the movement is that understanding and we can also bring real experiences to it. Uh, I, I'm old enough to have spent a great deal of time in the anti-Vietnam War movement and the key to the success of that in the United States was not, you know, as the right wing would it, you know, hippies with flowers. It was when organized socialists started organizing soldiers. And it was when members of the US military, none of whom were all, very few of whom were members of organized organizations, started striking literally in Vietnam, frequently with hand grenades for their officers. But uh, the point was, it was the people that, ma that many of the pacifists viewed as simply enemies who actually made the major force in bringing that war to an end. Now, is that possible in our time? Well, just a week ago, this is not a climate issue, but it's an interesting point to those who think that working people will only vote with their wallets. They will, they will think only in terms of their income and thus will favor whatever the bosses propose. Um, working people are not just bodies on the production line. They are also humans. They are also people with children. They are also people whose grandchildren are going to have to live through this world and they're very aware of it. Well, what happened, this is, I say, not a climate issue, but an interesting one. Uh, in the United States, the largest single um, vendor of furniture, household furniture, is a company called Wayfair.com. Um, and they sell on enormous levels of, you know, everything, beds, all the rest of it. Well, Wayfair.com is, is the supplier of furniture to Donald Trump's concentration camps. And the workers at Wayfair first took up a petition to demand that the company stop selling furniture to Donald Trump in the concentration camps. And when the company said no to a petition that had been signed by almost every single worker, they went on strike for a day. That was literally workers voting against their economic interests for their interests as humans, as, as people who have to live in this world. And that is a force that we have to mobilize. One of the strengths of this book is that underlying all of the articles is the view that the climate crisis and the environmental crisis more generally is not an abstraction, it is a function of a system of class oppression and the only way it can be stopped is by the victims of that oppression getting rid of it. Thank you. 
www.socialworkerspartyshow.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers Party or find out more about us, you can go to swp.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on facebook.com slash socialistworkersparty, on Twitter at SWPBritain, Instagram is socialist underscore workers underscore party, and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites, including Spotify, Deezer, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker and iTunes. Thank you.